Alex, I got to get him to set me up every week, okay? Uh, good morning, C4 family, and good morning to many of you watching online. I know there's a lot of you somewhere in Florida and somewhere else because it's March break, so we love you this morning. If you've got a Bible this morning, I would love you to turn to John chapter 14, physically, virtually, however you navigate the scriptures. If you don't have one today, we always have them at the kiosk, and you can follow along on the screens. We're still in the series out of the Gospel of John, and actually we're nearing the end. We've paired this series actually to follow right into Good Friday, the Easter, and then the Ascension afterwards. Two weeks ago and last week, we've seen incredible, incredible things take place. The resurrection of Lazarus, the worship of Mary. But if you kept reading the Scripture... In John 12 and John 13, it is full of the highest highs and the terrible lows of these people who have chosen to give up everything for Jesus. By this point, if you read the narrative, Jesus has now entered into Jerusalem. It's what we celebrate globally in the church called Palm Sunday. Thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, welcome Jesus into Jerusalem. They call him King and Messiah. They throw their cloaks down. They cut off palm branches. And they say, finally, finally, 400 years of waiting is over. And this man, this man is going to deal with the Romans. But they were wrong. The disciples, I'm sure, at that point got hope again. I mean, the religious leaders wanted to knock off Jesus, to kill him all the time, and now the crowds were back with Jesus. So what could the religious leaders do? And yet Jesus, right after that highest of highs, that deeply religious political moment, Jesus calls his close followers and says, Gentlemen, I'm coming to die. He does something amazing afterwards. He washes their feet. The God of the universe sits down and washes their feet. It's a holy moment. In that holy place, that act that would demonstrate so much about what Jesus had come to do actually is the foundation of our movement. It is the, it is the center of our leadership worldview as Christians. In the middle of that, another low, low. He turns to Judas. And he says to Judas that you, you're going to help murder me in the next few hours. And if that wasn't bad enough, if you read this story, it actually says in the Gospel of John that Satan himself, the so-called God of this world, literally walked into the room in that holy, sacred space and then came right into Judas and Judas fled. Could it get worse? Yes. If you keep reading the narrative... Jesus has this deep conversation with Peter. And he says, Peter, I know you think that you love me, and I know you think you're going to follow me to the end, even to death, but I need to tell you this moment, at this time, you're not only going to deny me, you are going to disown me, not one time, not two times, three. They're living contradiction that moment when Jesus walked in or rode into Jerusalem was the brightest. Their belief was the strongest. And now it's being wiped out by a tsunami of fear and death and betrayal. If you want to describe the hearts of these early followers, I remind you, who gave up everything to follow Jesus, it would be the word troubled. Things are falling apart. But Jesus... 
does not choose to let them stay there. He surprises them with hope. He chooses to address the panic in that terrible now and the coming not yet. He chooses to reassure them. He chooses to surprise them by hope. This is what you could call a preemptive joy strike from heaven. If people think things are bad at that moment, Judas is now possessed and turning against Jesus, preparing to murder him in the most vile of ways. Peter, you're going to deny me. Jesus says to his inner circle, you think it's bad now. You just wait. In a few hours, you're going to see me gruesomely murdered, called a criminal. The crowds that said yes to me are going to say louder no to me. But I am going to give you hope. Jesus brings hope into that darkness. Jesus brings peace into that darkness. Jesus brings love into that darkness. Jesus brings light into darkness. He chooses the worst moment to build belief into them. We as Canadians take trees for granted, don't we? There are hundreds of thousands, millions of them around us, and we we never stop to not just look at their beauty, but to understand that the greatest trees that have survived the greatest storms have the deepest root. The, the, the worse the storm, the deeper the roots. And Jesus understands this principle. And so as this huge tsunami of death is literally coming, he chooses to give them peace so their roots will grow deep and they will become such strong trees that they will survive even what they will face in the future. He knows. He knows what they're about to face. He's God. He knows the worry that steals sleep, keeps your mind churning, brings on stress, promotes that lack of peace you want, that burdens you, that great killer of joy. See, the human condition is so aptly described by Job, isn't it? Yet a man is born to trouble as surely sparks fly upward. Jesus has told them time and time again he has come to die. And not everything is okay, but lots actually is really wrong. And yet in the middle of chaos, in the middle of coming loss, he chooses to surprise them by hope and give them reassurance. Hear the word of God this morning, John 14, 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Do not let your hearts shudder. Keep on believing in God and keep on believing in me. What a brilliant song that Aaron led us in. I'm so glad he listened to the promptings of the Spirit. Hear this this morning. Jesus is saying to his people and to us, sovereignty is working right now. Everything is not falling apart. No, no. See, the plan of God is on schedule. God is still all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. He is providentially working out salvation at this moment. Notice C4. Lean in close to the holy word of God. Hear the words of Jesus and notice something, how personal they are. I love what Chuck Swindoll wrote when he said, personal faith in a personal Lord brings personal peace. This is the difference between religion and duty and moralism and truly being born again. Personal faith in a personal Lord brings personal faith. Jesus says to them, you already believe in God and you already believe in me. We already know each other. You are not living on hearsay. You're not saying, well, I've heard sort of about me. No, no, you know me. It's going to be okay. Is that not true in our relationships? The best relationships are based on experience. 
Not just knowing intellectually, but knowing. Keep on walking, everyone, he's saying. We're going to work this out. By the way, I hate how this verse is preached in many churches. Jesus is not teaching us that we can never worry. He's not calling us to be fake or Barbie-like Christians, plastic and human. He understands, like we do in this church, that experience and distress is just part of life. Worry is part of being human. We live in a broken world, and the context is king here. Jesus is teaching his leaders, his followers, these things. Do not have your heart shudder. Do not give in to worry. Why? Because I am leaving. The context is about Jesus leaving. Keep on believing with me and in me because I'm never going to leave you. Let's remind ourselves again what Christian belief is. Christian belief is not just acknowledging truth as truth. Christian believing is a reliance, confidence, it's relationship. It is this idea that everything we live through this life is about Jesus because we have relationship with him. Near our death, it's about him. At our deathbed, it's about him. After we die, it's about him. That is real belief. Not just some guy lived 2,000 years ago and we Googled him. No, no, we know him. We know him. Not only does Jesus choose at this moment to remind them that they have a personal, deep, experiential, intellectual relationship, and so since they have that, they have peace. Not only does does he remind them that he's in control and he's personal and he'll never leave us, then he declares that our future is just as secure as our present in him. In my Father's house, There are many rooms. If you read the King James, there are many what? Mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and and take you to be with me, and you will also be where I am. I love that Jesus chooses to use the word room or home as a metaphor. Now, don't become a North American materialist. Don't really think that Jesus is building you some southern mansion in the by and by. He's not. Sorry, everyone. That's not the point of this idea. The word home here or room is abode. It means to abide, remain, and notice. It's not just about the place. It's about the person who's in the place. See, Jesus is saying, I am going to prepare a place for you, and I'm there. And then he begins to unpack this thing that to the Jewish mind is so obvious. See, when a young guy decided to get engaged, there was this betrothal period. And his responsibility during the betrothal period was not to play video games back then. It was to do do something. He had to go build something. He had to go back to his dad's house and build a new wing on the family home. And then he'd come back after the celebration and he would take his bride and they would go back to the new abode he had built on the family's house. Don't you get it? Dad's house is there. I've built a new wing on dad's house. I'm going to bring you home. And Jesus comes and he says, oh, I am going to prepare a place for you. And by the way, it is a permanent place. You can't lose it. It can't be removed. It can't be lost. It can't be stolen or broken into because I am making it and it's my dad's house. It is permanent. See, isn't that what we long for as humans? Security, permanence, presence, love. 
We see this in our politics. We see this in our philosophy. We see it sung in art, painted all over the place in in, in music and art. It is the deep desire of the human condition. It's what C.S. Lewis called the inconsolable, inconsolable longing of the heart. There have been times, he wrote, when I think we don't even desire heaven. I find myself wondering, though, in our heart of hearts, if we actually desire anything else, he wrote. It's the secret signature of every soul. It's that unappeasable want, that thing we desire before we meet our wife or make friends or choose work. And by the way, he writes, it's the same thing you're going to desire on your deathbed when your mind no longer recognizes wife, friend, or work. It's what we want Human beings long for, kill for, pay for, desire, security, permanence, presence, and love. Paul Ternier, a famous psychologist, wrote a book called A Place for You. He said these very strong words. If you as a child have not grown up in a secure home, it's very likely as you go through life, regardless of your residence or wherever you are, you'll never feel at home. But on the other hand, if you have a chi- as a child have been secure and at home, wherever you go actually will be home. That psychological truth is so beautifully expressed by Jesus and what he's already done in us. See, Jesus is home for us in the now and the not yet. See, if you don't want Jesus in this life, you definitely don't want heaven because heaven's all about hanging out with Jesus. If you love him, though, and you want him here, the new heavens and the new earth are so wonderful, not just because they're permanent, because he is there. So many people around us don't get us as Christians. I don't care if you're Anglican, Baptist, Pentecostal, Non-denominational, which means you are a denomination, side note. Please. Every single one of us who love Jesus and love his word, people look at us, they don't get us. How, How do you live for someone named Jesus and sing and give money and sacrifice and serve people who aren't even like you? Why is your whole life about a person you've never met in the visible? And we go, but don't you understand there's such peace in him and such desire for him? See, we have discovered the secret of life is actually trusting in another perfect work, never our own work. We reject fatalism. We reject self-sufficiency because he brings peace. And the essence of this passage says we don't just want a perfect place, but we know a perfect person who's promised he's coming back for us. In the New Testament, there are 318 allusions and direct references to Jesus coming back. If you don't think about Jesus coming back for you, there is something fatally, fatally wrong with your theology. It is the essence, the fuel of hope. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you don't, what, grieve like the rest of mankind who have, oh, here it is, no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. And after that, we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And then he says it, therefore, encourage one another with these words. See, for I encourage you today with the word of God that Jesus is making a place for us. He still knows us now, and he's coming back for us. This is the word of God. 
Now, Jesus, back to the context, verse 4. You know the place where I'm going, right, guys? I mean, I've told you this. I've demonstrated it. You know, it's been three years. Ah, Thomas, love him. Thomas says, Lord, um, <clears throat> no, we don't know where you're going. Uh, how, how can we know the way? Epic fail. Okay. We don't understand why. We don't understand. Thomas is so honest. His questions, his inquisitive nature, I, I love it. Jesus, interestingly, does it again. He doesn't give an answer we'd all expect. He doesn't point to a place. He doesn't point to a road. He doesn't point to an idea. He doesn't point to morals or doctrine. or a, No, no. See, he turns around and he actually points to himself. And then he utters these words that I love so much, these words that have brought hope to billions of us over two centuries or two millennia, and the words that have divided homes and divided nations and violated worldviews. And Jesus responds to Thomas when Thomas says, well, we don't know what is the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one, no one, no one comes to God the Father except through me. Notice, Jesus is not just a way, he's the way. He, he redeems us. He's not only the one who speaks about truth, he's truth incarnate. He doesn't just hand out life, he actually is resurrection and life. See, the way speaks to the idea of God and humanity being reconciled. Truth reminds us he's the only one who can do it because he's fully reliable. And life reminds us that he actually is eternal life. This is the gospel expressed in one sentence. There is only one God. And we're called to know him. We are sinful, separated, spiritually dead. And the only way back to the Father is through Jesus the Son, period. This is an exclusive declaration, not only about the uniqueness of Jesus, but the work of Jesus. That is why later, Peter, as the church was starting just outside of Jerusalem, he would boldly declare in a pluralistic world and a relativistic world, just like ours, that teach that all roads lead to heaven, and if you're just good enough, you get in. That is wrong. It's why Peter cried out, Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind which we must be saved. How could Jesus be so arrogant, so bold? How could he, how could he say not all religions go there? Not all roads lead there. Only him. Well, the answer is simple if you believe what Jesus claims about himself. See, Jesus doesn't just say he's prophet, priest, or king, or religious revolutionary, or history maker. He says, no, no, I'm God in flesh. See, the only one who can bring you back to God is God because he's the only one who can rescue us. That's why Jesus says in verse 7, after he proclaims that grand exclusive deal, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. Here it is. And you have what? Say it loud. Seen him. How? Because Jesus is God. Right back to the very first verse in John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God in the beginning. All that is true about God the Father is true of Jesus the Word. Before the manger, Jesus was with God and was God. And since God is eternal and Jesus claims eternal status, he must be God or he is not. Jesus is co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with the Father. This is a grand revolution in religious experience and theological understanding. You want it simply? Here it is. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. Jesus. 
Everything you wanted to think about, ask him, you thought about, everything you weren't sure about the divine, Jesus. Jesus. I mean, this is profound teaching. This is a moment of moments. And I'm so glad about Philip's response because it gives us hope that he has patience for all of us too. After that grand declaration, Philip says, so Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. If I just see God, I'm going to be okay. I mean, I will follow better, I'll suffer better, I'll be filled with more joy. Uh, If I just have a theophany like Moses or Elijah or Isaiah, I'll be fine. And Jesus answered in verse 9, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for so long, oh, C4, do you not know me? After you've been with me for so long, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. No, no, no. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus again reminds them that Jesus is the perfect, visible, audible representation of the Father. As as Athanasius used to say, you can say everything about the Father except call him Jesus or the Spirit. You can say anything about Jesus except call him Father or Spirit. You can go right down the line with the three of them. I am in him and he is in me. Believe me, verse 11, C4, listen. When I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe the evidence of the works themselves. At this moment, Jesus has reassured them of personal faith. Jesus has reassured them of a place he's preparing for them. He has reassured them that it is permanent. It cannot be removed once it's begun. He has reassured them that he's coming back. And, oh, interesting, there's something we haven't touched on yet, which is the depth and the heart of today's message. He keeps calling God Father. The implication is that adoption is central to our hope and our identity. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, if you've never read it, you must, wrote this so long ago. By the way, this is going to hurt some of you in your ears and in your heart. He said these words. If you want to sum up the whole New Testament in a single phrase, it is the revelation of the fatherhood of God as a holy creator. And if you want to describe New Testament faith, it is the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his or her father. If this is not the thought that prompts you, he writes, and controls you, your worship, your prayer, your whole outlook on life, it means you do not fully, deeply understand Christianity very well yet. For everything that Jesus taught, everything, I love this, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Everyone ready? Because father is a Christian name for God. See, we don't call God mother in this church. Don't get defensive. Listen. Because mother is not a revealed name of God. See, God is spirit. He is both, has male and female distinctions. There's no argument about that. But we will never call God mother in this church because if you change the name of God, then you change the deity you're worshiping. You change the deity, you end up committing idolatry. Father is not an attribute. It is a name. 
It's the same as Yahweh, Elohim, and Jesus. See, here's what needs to take place in so many of you. See, the fatherhood of God has been ripped from you because of your own terrible experiences with bad dads. And that's just the truth. It's brutal, it's difficult, it's not easily solvable. But you need to begin to ask God to redeem fatherhood for you because he is a perfect father and as you approach him as father, you will suddenly understand the power of his fatherhood, the power of your adoption and your identity will be so deeply held by a good God that you will live in new freedom. If you do not love, run towards, struggle with the father of God, the fatherhood of God, your faith will always struggle. Jesus understands this. And he brings this home and he's expressing this not to bring pain or stir up history, but to bring redemption. If Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead, he can resurrect your view of fatherhood. This is a name and a function of our God. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me will do works I actually have been doing, and they will do greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Can I just stop and ask, do you even believe that? Like, look at that. Whoever believes in me will do the same works I have been doing. Anyone raised anyone from the dead lately? Just asking. Do you believe this? Well, okay, one person, that's good. No, but this is very interesting. Have you seen this at C4? Or the church you've grown up at? It's very interesting how you deal with this verse. It's very important. See, what Jesus has done is he's secured our identity. He's assured us of the fatherhood of God, our adoption, our future, our present. And now he's done assuring us and giving us peace. He sends us into mission and says, any person who follows after me who's in my name will be like me. Now here's the point. This is not a verse given to you as a person. This is where churches go sideways real quick. They say, well, I'm going to do everything Jesus did. No, you're not. Sit down. This is a promise to a people, the church, not to you as an individual. See, we see this at C4 and every church that loves God when all of us know our spiritual gifts and we use them. You think about it. We heal in Jesus' name. We cast out demons in Jesus' name. We mercifully help people in Jesus' name. We preach in Jesus' name. We intercede in Jesus' name. We give in Jesus' name. See, here's the point. The church, which actually is the body of Christ on earth, does exactly what Jesus does when all of us know our gifts, all 21 of them, and we start using them and working together as the body. And you say, well, how are we doing greater things? Here it is. There is over a billion Christians on earth who love Jesus. There was only one Jesus. Don't you understand that the same spirit that was on Jesus is in us. There's a billion of us now spreading the kingdom of God. See, that is the heart of this. So Jesus says to the church, you will do the same things I do corporately. And by the way, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do, so that the Father will be glorified through the Son. You may ask me for anything, and I will do it. Oh Lord, give me a car. Oh, Lord, I want to be thinner. No. How sad, how terrible, how serious judgment will be on so many leaders that have misused this for, for name it and claim it garbage. For the Father's glory and the work of the Son. 
You can ask anything in the name of Jesus, and if it lines up with God's glory and the work of the kingdom, then he'll do it because it's like Jesus is praying it himself. Permission-based prayer is where power is unleashed. Permission-based prayer, when we line up our prayer life with the character of God, the promises of God, and the character and the promptings of God, then things are answered. But this whole thing, oh Lord, no, no, no. The glory of God the Father, much of our prayer has nothing to do with God's glory and everything to do with our comfort. Jesus says, not only do I give you peace, not only do I give you assurance, I send you out in the same power as I have, and I promise you, I promise you, if you join me in prayer and pray prayers that are really about the kingdom of God, watch heaven and fire show up and see things changed. And then he throws it in, I love it. Oh, and um, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Side note. In other words... You can't just have Jesus as Savior, you have to have him as Lord. The reign and rule of God, the kingdom of God is when it is welcome. The lordship of Jesus is welcome. You will know over time, if you know me, if your life is slowly beginning to look like me, where you actually obey my command. See, we are people of truth. We are a movement of truth. We are being molded by the word of God. If you want to be more like Jesus, you have to read and love scripture because then you will know the heart of God and then you'll have the chance to obey. If you never, ever, ever obey Jesus, you probably don't know him. Jesus wants us to know if we really know him. So the great question then is this, okay, so how do I do this? I mean, you you say that you are personal and you're with me. You say you've gone home to prepare a place for me. You've promised it's permanent. You say you're coming back. You reassure me of the fatherhood of God. You reassure me that I am adopted. You tell me to go in the same power Jesus did, so my expectation is that what I see in the New Testament should be happening in Ajax, Pickering, Whippy, and Oshawa, and oh, my prayer life should be unbelievably powerful. Just wondering, God, how I get to do this in my screwed up, everyday, boring life. And the answer I love is this. Well, it's never you. Jesus would, I'm sure, would laugh. Not in a mockery, but oh, don't worry. You've got no gas in the car at all. No, see, I'm sending someone else. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you, and he will be with you forever, and he's the spirit of truth, and the word, the world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives within you, and he will be with you. If you're a highlighting person, highlight another. I learned this week in Greek, there's two another's in Greek. One means something of the same kind, the other one means something of a different kind. And Jesus, this is amazing, Jesus says, I'm sending someone of the same kind. He says, I am sending an advocate, a helper, a counselor to you, and he will never leave you, and notice, he is permanent, and he will never be withdrawn, and that's why Paul calls him in Romans the Spirit of Christ. He convicts us of sin, brings Jesus into our life, gives us spiritual gifts, gives us character, and empowers us not only to follow after Jesus, he's the one who reminds us of all truth. He reminds us and assures us that we are God's child. I am sending someone just like me. It says in Ephesians that 
We've been sealed until the day of redemption. Listen, I know this is controversial, but let me say it again. When the Spirit of God moves in, He does not leave. Salvation is permanent. You can't kick God out of the house He chooses. So it's there. So Jesus says, I'm sending you the Spirit of God. How many times, if you're a Christian or a seeker, have really wanted to sit with Jesus and ask Him a question? We're like, Philip, you know, Jesus, if you were just here physically, things would be a lot easier. Kent Hughes, a guy I was reading this week, said, can you imagine if Jesus was here today? I never thought about this. He said, can you imagine? He just shows up in Jerusalem and announces, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, I'm here. Uh, Not the second coming, though, just bad theology for a moment. He's just here. He said, can you imagine what would happen? Think about it. He said, every jetliner in the world would start going to Jerusalem. Every, every tugboat, every carnival crew, like everyone going. Why? Because everyone, the mil- most militant atheist, the most devout Christian, everyone would want to go sit with Jesus and see and hear and talk. See, here's the point. If Jesus was physically on earth, you probably would die in the line waiting to see him because so many would be in front of you. Have you thought about it? And yet Jesus comes along and he says, don't you understand? I have sent the Holy Spirit who's just like me and you have access to him now, now, now is the time. You can talk to the Holy Spirit at this moment, at the graveside, in the hospital, when you're putting kids in the minivan asking for patience like I do every single morning, Holy Spirit, help me. You can, you can talk to him when you're doing your devotions, when you're in church. See, here's the power of our movement. The spirit of Jesus, who is not Jesus, but just like Jesus, gives us access to God all the time. And he is just like Jesus. And if you know the spirit, the spirit takes you to Christ, and Christ takes you to the Father. But if you spend no time with the spirit, your faith will be so weak, so weak. Why? Because he's the access point to the Trinity. This is so important for us to understand. We have access to God now, all the time. And Jesus says, you you want me to stay, don't you, Philip? And don't you, Thomas, because you're deeply afraid because I've been with you for three years. But I am sending another and this another who is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He will be enough for you. He will remind you, empower you. Oh, do not worry. And then he declares it. I will not leave you as, here it is, orphans. I will come to you. And if you read the whole section, he talks about his death and his resurrection. One of the most powerful verses in the whole passage is in verse 27. He says, peace I leave to you. My peace I give with you. I give to you as the world does not give. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. You're not fatherless. You're not fatherless. I am not distant but close. Your eternity, it's secure and it can't be removed by you or anyone else. God is working on sovereignty right now in this moment. When we pray, great things will take place. We're called into the same work as Jesus. We are not alone. We've been given the Spirit of God to to give us the ability not only to believe, but to act. And oh, by the way, Jesus is actually really, really, really coming back. He's going to split the skies. He's going to judge humanity, and he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth 
and all the garbage and nuclear war and violence and rape and human trafficking, it's all going to end because the residence he is building is pure. So much for us personally in passages like this to spend hours thinking and working on. But a few things I want to ask as a whole church body this morning. You online, would you lean in at this moment too, wherever you are? Let me keep preaching the way I have been for the last few weeks. You know, the foundation of a real revival, a re- I mean a real ongoing move of God is found here. And, and let me just say it for what it is. When Christian people, everyday Christian normal people, start really believing, living our lives under, with, and through the person and promises of Jesus, revival really happens. When you don't believe you're an orphan any longer, and you're not alone, and you're actually possessed by the Spirit, and He's not leaving, so you don't need to run up again on Friday night to get saved, and when you have access to Him, and He's just like Jesus, and when you know that you are know, that you know that you are personally known by God, and you actually know who God is, and that you're saved by the way, the truth, and the life, and you don't have a burden to prove anything to God any longer, since Jesus did that, and since you love God, you are willing to obey Him. See, when you live like this, that actually is revival. As one scholar said, the grand shift in a church you will know is moving towards revival when personal liberation takes place, where leaders and followers testify against spiritual bondage, and we move, everyone listen, lean in, really, for real, put your cell phones down. We move from being and thinking that we are unloved orphans rejected by a wrathful God to the assurance of an adoption by an all-loving Father. When your identity and your worldview is rocked by the truth that has already happened to you, but you begin to believe it, then, then, then revival begins to take place because people start living who they are already. So important that you understand this. Identity rooted in what the scriptures have declared over us. That is where personal liberation takes place. The second wave in a church is when the church actually believes that Jesus is preparing a place and he's actually coming back. Not just sort of maybe. No, he is. We believe that he's coming. But then here's what's not happened at C4 yet because we're only in between one and two. When it spills out of the church, when it moves from revival into awakening, where we see it spill over into the community, is when we start not only believing what God has declared and done in us already, that we begin to know the fatherhood of God and the power of his lordship through Christ, but we actually start believing the promises of Jesus for them are real too. Where a local church believes, I don't care if it's this church or the embassy or people's church or forest, it doesn't matter. When a local church gets to the point where they not only know that they know what God has done for them and they know that their future is secure, but when they start believing too that Jesus said, we will do the same things Jesus did and when we pray properly in power, things are going to change. That's when it spills from revival into awakening. 
Because then we step out and we're not afraid of our neighbors anymore and we're not afraid of what people will say because we are walking in the same power that Jesus did. And when we pray and we're praying for God's glory and not our own garbage, suddenly, suddenly Jesus shows up. Why? Because every time God is glorified in prayer, every time God is exalted in all ways, oh, oh, God shows up. Because it's about him and not about us. My simple prayer as I end is this. And Aaron, you can come up. We'll, we'll just end this way. My, my prayer for myself, because I was really challenged personally by the last one. My prayer for us is that we will believe what is declared by Jesus for us already. That we won't intellectually just believe it, but we will know it. My prayer for this church is that the fatherhood of God will be redeemed in many of you. And that you will know, that you know, that you know you are not an orphan. That we will believe that Jesus has prepared a place for us and it is real. And then my prayer for us corporately, we're not there yet, so I will not declare it, is that we will begin to believe that we are called into the same ministry as Jesus and our prayer life will be the same as Jesus as we move out. Oh Lord, hear our prayer. Oh Christ, hear our prayer. Oh Holy Spirit, God of heaven and earth, I pray for so many here and online who have been faithful to you like Thomas and Peter. Faithful, but still do not fully understand because of so much. Oh, Jesus, you say that your spirit will remind us and lead us in all truth. Oh, Jesus, lead us in all truth. Oh, God, remind us that you are coming back and this life is not all that matters. And then my my intercession, my prayer on behalf of the people I serve and myself is this. Prepare this church to walk in the power of Jesus. Prepare this church to pray the prayers of Jesus. And oh, give us the humility of Jesus. So thousands meet him. Glory be to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.